Heavenly Father, may your word dwell in us and and bear much fruit uh, to your glory. Amen. I I wonder whether you've ever heard of a vox pop before. Have you heard of that term before? um, The term comes from a Latin phrase, which means the voice of the people. And it records on film the responses of people when they are asked a question about a particular topic and the results are viewed as a reflection of popular opinion. Have you seen one of these before? Perhaps on YouTube. Um, you, 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 you're a YouTube crowd, surely. Um, <clears throat> anyway, if I had the time, I probably would have tried to do one of these myself. But imagine if you had uh, organised to ask members of this community... This question, assuming for the moment that there really is a heaven, what do you think are the general requirements for admission? Who gets in and who doesn't? Just think of the range of responses that you would receive. What about for yourself? How would you answer that question? We'll hear a few of the more common answers, even among Christians. A, because I have tried my best to be a good Christian. B, because I believe in God and try and do his will. C, because I believe in God with all my heart. All three actually reveal common misunderstandings as to what belief is, what faith is. So I just want to be super clear at this point. Answer A is a salvation by works answer. That's what it is. Answer B is a salvation by faith plus works answer. Answer C is a salvation by faith as a work answer. See that? Well, Paul is out to unravel all of these and more and instead explain that salvation is a gift and it is received by faith alone. And it's very important that we understand this and also understand how it is that we might be tempted, or do currently even, believe otherwise. As I shared last week, when you walk into Romans, it's almost like you walk into a courtroom, and not as a judge or the jury or as the executioner, but as one on trial. And we can hire all the lawyers that we want. Uh, However, in the courtroom of Romans 1 to 3, all are guilty. But then we have this incredible turn of phrase, this incredible turn of events in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. This represents a twist in the trial. He writes, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. So the good news of the gospel is that in the divine cosmic courtroom, in which the verdict clearly ought to have been guilty, 
you have been justified. That is declared innocent through faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is a surprising verdict. And it is received by faith alone so that no one can boast. And it's this topic of righteousness by faith that is a concern of every single paragraph in Romans chapter 4. And Paul calls on two witnesses in Romans chapter 4. He calls on Abraham and then he calls on David to show that righteousness by faith has actually always been a part of God's plan. There was never anyone who was declared righteous by any other way. But Abraham is a bit of a surprising witness for for Paul to to call. Um, You see, it was thought that Abraham actually, if given the choice, would appear for the other team. Right? Because it was assumed that his unique salvation historical status was due to his obedience, his righteousness. So you can imagine the, de- the defence team sort of wondering to themselves as Paul calls Abraham up to the stand, hang on, he, he was going to be our prime witness. And Paul knew that. And so he calls Abraham as his. And he begins there in verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter, this matter being righteousness by faith? And for Paul, this is his mic drop moment. Okay, This is his mic drop moment. He asks in verse 3, Well, what does Scripture say? And he goes to Scripture. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a quote. It's a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says that Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. Now, the word uh, translated credited here is an extremely important word for Romans chapter 4. Okay, so it appears 11 times in Romans chapter 4. It appears in verse 3, it appears in verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8 as count, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. You can't miss it. It is an accounting term. It's an accounting term. For those accountants out there, it's an accounting term meaning to credit to one's account or to count as. So it's not saying that Abraham was righteous, rather that God reckoned, considered Abraham's faith as righteousness. And then he offers this by way of explanation. He says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts in God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So when someone is given money, it is either a result of their work, wages, or it's not. It's a gift. So if salvation is not a gift, okay, then it follows that somehow God is obliged to save us. Just like your employer is obliged to pay you. And of course, that runs against the entire message of the Bible. Righteousness is not obtained by working for God, but by believing in a God who works for you. 
They're justifying the ungodly. Just recently, a man in Chile, you may have heard this on the news, just recently, a man in Chile disappeared after he was accidentally paid more than 300 times his annual salary. Uh, and so in May, he received something like 260000 Australian dollars, whereas he ought to have received something like $700 Australian dollars. Anyway, um, <coughs> he, he initially informed his manager. Uh, he then uh, flagged it with, with HR. He also promised that he would actually go to his bank and uh, retrieve the money and, 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 and have the cash returned. And of course, instead, he withdrew it and disappeared. Obviously, the, the, the company is now trying to recover it. And they issued a statement. And they said this. He was informed, and it was clarified, that this money did not correspond to the payment of any service. And neither does our righteousness by faith correspond to the payment of any service. The difference between that situation and ours is that this is not some cosmic accounting error on God's part. It is a gift. It is a gift. You didn't earn it. You were freely gifted it. Paul's argument is this. Look, if you read the Old Testament narrative in sequence, right, you discover that actually Abraham was justified by faith long before the law and even before circumcision. So circumcision was a religious and cultural symbol of belonging to God and, and, and his people. But the point Paul will make a little later is that Abraham was already considered righteous in Genesis 15.6, well before he was circumcised, possibly decades later in Genesis 17. Righteousness by faith was always God's plan. So Abraham sits down. Next, Paul calls David to the stand, King David. Because it turns out he actually says the same thing. And he says the same thing in Psalm uh, 32. In Psalm 32, he says this. So Paul is quoting David at this point. He says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. There's that word, count. If anyone had a reason to boast, right, it would have been King David. Yet David also had many reasons to be crushed by his own sinfulness, right? He was an adulterer, and through conspiracy, he was a murderer. And so he actually acknowledges that he's a sinner, but he had discovered blessing in being counted righteous apart from works. And friends, so it is with you and me. Though we sin, our sin is not counted against us. Well, in calling Abraham and David as witnesses, Paul has proven that righteousness by faith was, continued to be, must always be a righteousness credited to those who have faith, specifically in God's promises. And it is a theme, that is a theme actually, 
of the second half of um, chapter 4. The word promise it comes up again and again. It, it occurs in verse, uh, verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 16 and verse 20 and verse 21. And the message is this, that what God says, God does. What God says, God does. And uh, it begins by referring to this great biblical theme in verse 13. So Paul writes this, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now the Old Testament doesn't actually use this same language when referring to God's promise to Abraham. But Paul does here to capture how it is that Christ ultimately fulfills God's promise to Abraham. See, Adam and Eve, humanity, were made to rule the world. We were made to rule the world. Now, you and I know that Adam blew it, and we blow it. But Christ, he didn't, and so he does. He does rule the world. And if we're in him, we will too. We will inherit the new earth and reign with Christ as God intended back in the garden. This is a huge promise. And Paul's point is that it's not going to come through the law. The law doesn't do any good. We just break it. Verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. What God says, God does. And we can have faith that what God says, God does, because in verse 17, he is, get this, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And not only does he do this in the very beginning, right? Genesis 1. But if you recall... That is effectively what he did for Abraham and Sarah in their son Isaac. <coughs> they were as good as dead. <laughs> they were meant to be in the geriatric ward, right? Not the maternity ward. But, verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And Abraham's faith is a model for the kind of faith that God is still looking for in his people. That is, to have faith despite what is going on around us and at times despite what is going on within us. But if Abraham is a model of faith, we need to understand... <coughs> We need to understand what Paul means when he writes this in verse 19. I wonder if any of you, uh, this stood out to any of you. He writes, without weakening in his faith. Now, you need only read a little of Abraham's story to know that um, he failed regularly and sometimes spectacularly. What we need to appreciate here is that Paul, Paul knew about that. It's not like Paul is just brushing it under the rug. He, he knew about that. So did the people to whom Paul was writing too. They knew about this too. 
He's trying to have this focus not on Abraham's perfect obedience, but upon his belief in the promises of God. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. Friends, a life of faith is not a perfect life. It's not a perfect life. It is the life which clings onto what God has said he will do. We will fail, but he won't. And so we take God at his word. We take God at his word. Even when there is nothing else to go on, even when feelings or popular opinion or sometimes common sense seems to contradict his word, we take him at his word. Faith is to look at what God has said and let that define reality for you. Where does all this leave us? Well, Paul leaves us in no doubt. He has the application there for us. Verse 23 and 20, uh, to 25. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What does saving faith look like for us? It's to believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead and to trust God's promise that his death and his resurrection was for our sins, for our justification. See, Abraham's faith was in the promise of a descendant. Our faith is in what God says one of his descendants has achieved. That is the promise which is to define our reality and shape our lives. And what God did for Abraham in Isaac, he has done for us in Christ. He has. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. And the longer that we go on in the Christian life, the more we need to remember this. Because the longer that we go on in the Christian life, the more likely we are to forget this. After all, I've given a lot of my time to God. After all, I've given a lot of my money to God. Now, the only reason I became a Christian, the only reason I go on being a Christian day by day is because the God who made the promise is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that we're not. Now, deep down, we resent this. We resent it. We resent the implication that we bring nothing to the table. But there for the grace of God go I. I did not deserve the favour of God, I do not deserve the favour of God, and I will not deserve the favour of God. I recently watched a documentary on the uh, British DJ, radio, TV personality, Jimmy Savile, called The British Horror Story. Now, I wasn't familiar with this story. You 
uh, perhaps are. But I think he captures what it is that so many people believe. So listen to this. I believe in God because if nothing else is a good gamble. If you try to live by a decent code, a reasonably decent code, as well as you can manage, then it's a hope that when the time comes that you go off into, for the want of a better word, a life hereafter and a heaven. Come judgment day, you, me, I mean, stand up anybody who is so good that they'll walk straight through the golden gates. Are there any of us here? I'd like to meet you. I think we'll all have a hard time. Me, when I stand in front of the table and St. Peter's there and he says, you're not coming in, I'll say, why not? He'll say, because you're a villain. And he'll show me the debit side. I'll say, hang about. And I'll show him the credits. And ask him, does that mean anything? And if he says that means nothing, I'll threaten to break his fingers. Because I don't know anybody who's going to get an easy ride into heaven. He clearly didn't read or clearly didn't understand Romans 1, 2, 3, 4. Most people think that if you just do your best, you'll somehow make it into heaven. Don't listen to the voice of the people. It may be a popular opinion, but it is tragically mistaken. But why don't you ask your friends or your neighbours or your family member that question this week. Assuming for a moment that there really is a heaven, what do you think of the general requirements for admission? Who gets in, who doesn't? And tell them the good news of the gospel, that salvation is a gift and is received through faith alone. Amen.